Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world we live in, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a special chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We have a lovely chat room with a marvelous group of people. It's a great way to make new friends, uh, to ask questions, get other people's opinions and thoughts on the radio show. It's a lovely place. And, of course, Andrea and I are always there and love to greet everybody. So do come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. You and Andrea make a great team. You know that? I'm blessed to have you. All right. Heavenly Lies is the subject of this week's Spotlight. Not long ago, I learned that my radio show was the target of a would-be boycott because I had questioned a guest's credibility. Imagine that. The guest insisted that persons who experienced a NDE often returned with higher IQs, some 200 and above. That's a pretty big claim, and as such, I sought some clarification both during and after the show. For example... Neha Ramu, a 13-year-old girl living in London, has a higher IQ score than Stephen W. Hawking and Albert Einstein. Her score of 162 is the highest possible mark on the Mensa IQ test for geniuses under 18. Scores above 140 are generally considered to be genius level. The average adult score is 100. So scores of 200 and higher. Well, if this IQ claim were to be true, it would represent a material difference in how we view consciousness to say nothing about adding real evidence to the NDE reports. I remain open to receiving any and all such evidence, but unfortunately, after nearly two years, no such evidence has been forthcoming. However, I have learned that simply questioning claims made by popular authors can lead to ostracism. So why question them at all? Let me share this one with you first. In January of this year, Alex Malarkey, now 16, in an open letter shared by his mother, admitted that his tale of going to heaven was a concoction, and that his book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, written with his father, was a lie. Quoting from the article that appeared in the Daily Mail, the book describes heaven thus, When I arrived in heaven, I was inside the gate. The gate was really tall, and it was white. It was very shiny, and it looked like it had scales like a fish. It was the inner heaven, and everything was brighter and more intense on the inside of the gate. It was perfect. Perfect in my favorite word. Perfect is my favorite word for describing heaven. Close quote. Alex also describes in the book how he floated above the scene of his crash and talked to Jesus while firefighters extricated his body from the wreckage. 
The book is one of three true stories of heaven, and I'm going to put true stories in quotation marks, obviously, on sale in most Christian bookstores. 90 Minutes in Heaven and Heaven is for Real are the other two. Quoting Alex again, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from my lies and continued to do so. People profit from lies. Is that a problem? It's certainly unethical, but my argument with this sort of thing goes to the very credibility of the field. Spiritual research is, in my view, a legitimate human inquiry. We should be collecting and analyzing data about death and dying, out-of-body experiences, the extension of consciousness through mediumship, and so forth. And the work doesn't need to be only about the objective nature of things, for this, the subjective experiences of many can be assembled and compared, and this alone can lead to great insights. All of this information is important, and in many ways, it may represent what our lives here are all about. However, not everyone shares my view. Indeed, Many members of the scientific community scoff at this sort of research. You see, the fact is, it's only been very recently that it was acceptable to research consciousness itself. And that's largely due to potential applications in the artificial intelligence arena. So the real problem to me is the issue that every one of these misrepresentations corrodes the integrity of truthful information within that domain. I remember well the Bridie Murphy story and the sensationalism it brought to the issue of reincarnation. In the book, The Search for Bridie Murphy by Maury Bernstein, we learned of a young woman's earlier life. The book is based upon an allegedly true story of Virginia Ty, who was hypnotized by Bernstein and remembered a life as Bridie Murphy, that took place in 1798. Ty brought forth incredible detail during her hypnotic sessions regarding this lifetime, and much of the detail turned out to be accurate. The success of the book led to a boom in reincarnation publishing. Eventually, investigators discovered that the story was a confabulation built from information Ty had learned from Bridie Murphy Corkle who lived across the street from where Ty grew up. Quoting Martin Gardner, who seized the opportunity to discredit the notion of hypnotic regression and reincarnation altogether, quote, Almost any hypnotic subject capable of going into a deep trance will babble about a previous incarnation if the hypnotist asks him to. He will babble just as freely about his future incarnations. In every case of this sort, where there has been adequate checking on the subject's past, it has been found that the subject was weaving together long-forgotten bits of information acquired during his early years. Close quote. So you can see how a skeptic can use one false incident to marginalize many. Obviously, for years following the exposure of Bridie Murphy myth, Serious reincarnation investigation was going upon by scholarship. That said, somehow the myth continues to live on, 
Just a short time ago, I read a book that offered the story of Bridie Murphy as evidence for reincarnation. This one piece of evidence, a lie, continues to undercut honest inquiries. Now, just so there is no confusion, I have satisfied myself that the evidence strongly favors the proposition of consciousness surviving the death of the physical body. Indeed, I conducted much of my own research into this arena, including more than two dozen interviews with experts in the field, and I am convinced that if you apply the same criteria one would in a court of law, that of beyond a reasonable doubt, you must conclude in favor of life after death. If you're interested, you can review many of those interviews for yourself. There's a banner on my home page at eldentaylor.com titled Life Beyond Death, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt that will lead you to those interviews. Indeed, today's guest will cast some additional light, and we're going to discuss a great book, Grimsing in Heaven. That said, corrosion contaminates the entire field of psychic investigation and largely because of deliberate misrepresentations. As such, serious researchers, and there are many, often find themselves apologizing for the untruths and misinformation that plague the field, and this before they can explain their own valid findings. That is why I call on every one of you to follow the admonishment of an unknown author. When you hear hoofbeats, think first of horses, not centaurs. As for me, I will continue to call it as I see it, and if that leads to ostracism and boycotts, well, so be it. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? I definitely like to search for the truth. We're actually discussing this in the chat room right now. You know, the fact that all of these stories are, well, not all of them, the most popular stories about life after death paint everything as being perfect, heavenly, wonderful. And so I have to question, is that just convenient? Is that because that's what we want to believe? In fact, someone in the chat room just said, um, there are more and more of these stories coming out. So is that because we're more open to them? And I have to say, you know, maybe it's because more and more people are inventing them or they're dreaming about them or they're incorporating it into their experience. These are things that you have to question. Or perhaps they're gaining the courage because... It can be both. Today's guest, I think, will add a lot to that. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Renee Mullen Masters, and we discussed her book and work, You Are Smarter Than You Think. Mark wrote, Renee Mullen Masters makes an important distinction between rote memorization and learning. Moreover, most people in this country are taught primarily through language processing, for which she points out many are not well-suited and consequently do not learn. She's discovered that they learn best by processing through other means based on their own innate intelligence or preference. I think that while it's important to identify and implement one's preference to learning, it is a derivative to a more fundamental aspect of learning, and that is using one's faculty of reason in an objective manner to acquire knowledge. Most children are never taught the art of reasoning, nor the nature of knowledge or its purpose in their lives. After all, the purpose of knowledge is to improve one's life. 
I believe that learning to use this important faculty at a young age would go a long way to make people less susceptible to memorization and empower them to know what it really means to understand a subject. Thus empowered, they would find that learning can be a pleasant and natural experience. Amen, Mark. I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, the real problem is that if you teach them to think, then they're going to question the system. And that may not be in the system. Well, you know, now we're off onto another subject. Tanya wrote, I wish I had known about this way of learning when I was in school. It would have made a huge difference. Anna wrote, I wonder how many children are labeled ADHD who are really just kinesthetic learners, and they need to be up and moving in order to learn. That's a really valid point. That's an area where it's just way overdiagnosed. Darlene wrote, I just found your show a few weeks back, and I want to thank you for the courage to speak up. Not everyone will do that. They sort of go along to get along. It's refreshing to hear your approach. Andrea commented, I'm glad that Eldon doesn't hold back. That's what makes his show so great. Melissa wrote, I'm currently reading your book, Mind Programming. Thank you for all of your years of hard work and learning that you passed on to the world. What an amazing book. I had a big eye-opener when it came to the truth about advertising. The Intertalk CD that came with the book is exactly what I needed to raise my point of attraction. I feel so happy listening to it. I've only been listening to it for a couple of days, and I already feel a difference in my state of mind, my happy meter, and the way that I experience life. Definitely more positive. Ty wrote, Intertalk, awesome company with incredible results. I love this CD therapy. (laughs) Daryl wrote, I have several of Eldon's Intertalk CDs, and I just love them. And Lydia wrote, There you have it in a nutshell. The reason why I look forward to reading your post, watch your videos, buy your books and CDs, listen to your radio, and quote you. You don't duck the hard issues. You challenge thought and aspire to make the world a better place. Thank you for your impact. All right, that's all the time that we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to today's show, Glimpsing Heaven with Judy Backrack. Imagine that you have a fear of death. Imagine that you have a cold corpse in front of you. How do you respond? What do you do? Most importantly... What do you think about that lifeless body laying there? I mean, is it just destined to rot? What happened to the life force that drove this vehicle? What were the ambitions? What were the goals? What kind of life did this life force live? Where did it go? Do you seriously entertain any and all of these questions? Or do you dismiss them to move on with the urgency of the moment? I mean, you know, life does go on, doesn't it? Let's just forget this one. I mean, and don't most attempt to just avoid the subject of death. Well, our guest today admits that she had a fear of death. And so following the admonishment of her therapist, she decided to confront the thing of her fear. To do this, she volunteered at a neighborhood hospice, and in her words, not just engaging, but rather jumping in. In her long journalistic career, Judy Backrack has worked at the Washington Post, the Washington Star as a political columnist, and is currently a Vanity Fair contributing editor as well as a professor of journalism. 
She is most recently the author of Glimpsing Heaven, the Stories and Science of Life After Death, which was published by National Geographic Books. The book is a journalistic odyssey filled with the author's extensive interviews with those who have died and then been resuscitated, ordinary individuals who return to life with vivid, specific, and structured recollections of what Bachrach calls their death travels. She also interviews the doctors, scientists, and nurses who have examined both the death travelers and their memories of what have occurred during those voyages beyond life's borders. Scientists, doctors, and nurses who find these memories credible and accurate. It's a great book, a great read. I had to air my copy in in order to be able to get it here in time and have it read, and I'm not sorry I did. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Judy Backrock. Thank you. Indeed, our pleasure. That is a great book, and I'm sure you've heard that over and over again. So let's do this. What we like to accomplish on this show is basically three things. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So let's begin with you, if we can. Please tell us about Judy Backrack. I mean, what, what were you like as a child? What was it like growing up for you? Were you popular in school? Did you enjoy school? Were you involved in athletics, music, you know, a cheerleader? In short, who were you as a young person? Who were you that formed the Judy Backrack of today? I guess, and this is the first time I've been asked those questions, actually. I guess I was a very shy person. Uh, very closed, uh, very reluctant to make friends. But as I grew older, particularly after adolescence, I became much more garrulous, much more involved, loved college, loved graduate school in journalism. I went to Columbia and had a great time and particularly loved it when I became a journalist. I really enjoyed that. Okay, so <laughs> that's a quick I have to tell you that I hated childhood and adolescence. I you loved did. adulthood. Okay, I think I could I think we could surmise that as quick as we went through it. Tell me this because it has relevance on your work today, particularly our conversation. Were you raised in a religious community? No, not at all. I mean, so, my parents are Jewish. We're Jewish. They're now dead. Um, but they weren't particularly religious. I went to Sunday school. I learned Hebrew after a fashion. Um, but I wasn't religious, and I have to add this, and I don't know how your audience will take this. I'm still not particularly religious. I just discovered some things about consciousness after death. But I'm not a person who, you know, goes to temple every day or thinks that I must pray every second in order to go to heaven. That is not what I learned through this book or in life. Um, I just learned that there is consciousness after death. That is what I learned. The fact of the matter is I think that uh, that lends credibility to your work and to your book. Uh, maybe it's kind of like having a Michael Shermer write the same book, you know. Uh, when When... When you're attached uh, to a belief, and it's important to you that uh, what you believe is true, it obviously comes through in in your work, 
in uh, how you portray the story. So let's do this then. Uh, it, you're not religious. You've attended Sunday school. I take it you're not atheist, though. No, I'm not an atheist. Okay, so we kind of have an agnostic perspective or, you know... Uh, I suspect that there that is a deity, but I don't understand a lot of what the deity does or doesn't do, let me put it that way. Okay, so you consider yourself to be Jewish today? Yes, indeed, I am. Okay, all right. So now, then let me ask you this. Um I think anybody that reads the Bahir kind of struggles with uh, what the deity intends for us and why. Um, is that what produced your fear of death? That's a good question. I think my fear of death came from the fact that I didn't understand, and to this day do not, uh, why we had to die. Um, did not understand why, when life is so compelling, death is so frightening. And um, was very scared of death, particularly after one of my closest friends died of cancer at age 32. Uh, that drove me crazy, because we'd grown up together. She was a very endearing person. We'd become best friends right away from the age of 14, she looked a lot like me, in fact. And when she was dying of cancer at a very young age, after having had two kids, it drove me crazy, I have to say. I was devastated. And from that point on, death to me was the worst thing that could have ever happened. You state in your work that you panicked uh, whenever you I did. saw... A corpse. Now, you know, most people don't actually see a corpse unless it's a, a loved one that dies. So um, you, you speak about this in a plural sense. Was there something that you were doing that brought you on to many, or was this a, a event that... No, I was uh, a long I am a long-time journalist. I right. worked for the... As you mentioned, I worked for the Washington Post, Washington Star. Inevitably, all journalists, or most do, uh, see corpses. I mean, right. it's an unfortunate byproduct of our work. So you do see dead people. And it freaked me out. It drove me crazy because the idea of never thinking again, never having a consciousness, that disturbed me greatly. So it was through your work in journalism that you first became aware. It wasn't through the death of a loved one. Uh, no, actually, it was the notion from the time I was 12 that people died, because, of course, I had grandparents and great-grandparents, and they mm -hmm. died, and that they never moved again, thought again, lived again, had consciousness again. That very much disturbed me. I realized the same thing would happen to me very early. So you took this to a therapist, explained it to a therapist, and the therapist essentially said, well, what you need to do is face your fear? No, actually, to the contrary. I'm afraid you got that slightly wrong. I decided I had to face my fear. So you're your own therapist, Particularly, okay? yeah, in that sense. Okay. A little later, I told my therapist about it, a few years later, and the therapist said, you're never supposed to do that. You're never supposed to con confront fears directly by 
say volunteering in a hospice. <laughs> but to be truthful, volunteering in a hospice helped me a lot. Um, not because, you know, it was such a good thing to do or a decent thing to do or a kind thing to do, but you face death that way and you work it out that way. However, it didn't help me 100%. I still was very much afraid of it. Um, and I decided that when National Geographic came to me and asked me to do a book on death experiences, I thought, uh-huh, right, there are no death experiences. This will be a very short book. Take the money okay, and now I'm going to ask you to hold it right there. We'll just leave the audience kind of dangling. I don't want to get kicked out by the computers, and we have a hard break coming. We're speaking okay. with Judy Backrack about her life, work, and book, Glimpsing Heaven, the stories and science of life after death. You can learn more about her by visiting judybackrack.com. That's J-U-D-Y-B-A-C-H-R-A-C-H.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Ravinder and I love supporting causes we believe in. We both feel the pain when we see an animal abused. Call it empathy or what you will, the pain is very real. We both also celebrate with joy the wonderful stories of animal rehabilitation. Indeed, it can be goosebump time. We urge you to get involved and lend aid to your local animal shelter or in the alternative, make your donations to the Humane Society of the United States. You can read about their work and make that donation by going to www.humanesociety.org. You can make a difference, but only if you act. Thank you. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Get better. And any 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Judy Backrack about her life, work, and book, Glimpsing Heaven, the Stories and Science of Life After Death. Now we ask our guests for three songs, songs that have some special significance, real meaning to them. Music can elicit deeply emotional states, and in many ways our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. And we all know nowadays that some music can bring you right out of a coma, can wake you right up from deep states of dementia. So it does wire directly into us. All right, with that said, we just played Hey Jude, performed by the Beatles. Why is this one special to you, Judy? It's your first choice. And how does it tell us about who you are? Uh, That's a good question. I like Hey Jude because... It indicates that you can pull yourself out of whatever depression you're in, that there is hope in this life. I found that song very touching. As a shy child from the past, did you know uh, states of depression that made this one important? I think I did. I think that's a good question. I, I think that when I was very, very young, I found the world a terrifying place. Um, the song Hey Jude offers people who really listen to it a chance to understand that it doesn't have to be terrifying, that you can make it what you want to be with effort. And this one would have spoken to you at about that age, too, wouldn't it have? Yes, it would have. And to you, Jude. <laughs> that, That's- too. Yeah, that too. So this one goes on your list in case uh, you're ever in that state that a loved one needs to play a piece of music to wake you up. It would. It, it would. It's a very comforting song. A lot of the Beatles songs are comforting, and I think that's part of the reason behind their eternal popularity, that they offer the listener something to believe in, something to True. hope for. True. All right, before the break, you were about to tell us about the short book. So the National Geographic asked you to write this book. You didn't believe there was any such thing. Um, No, I was sure there wasn't. (laughs) Right. Pick it up. Tell it. Well, I was pretty sure, I mean, not only because I'd worked in hospices as a volunteer, um, but I was pretty sure that there was no consciousness after death. Um, I'm not pretty sure I was certain there was no consciousness after death. Um, and it was only when National Geographic asked me to write a book about near-death experiences, they, they knew I'd worked as a volunteer in hospices, um, that I started doing research. And I realized that I did not want to write about near-death experiences pretty early on. I realized after talking to a couple of physicians and scientists that I wanted to talk about death experiences. People whose hearts had stopped, whose, uh, who had stopped breathing, who were not responsive to pain, uh, whose brain stems had stopped functioning, all the classical signs of actual death. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that those were the people whose memories I wanted to investigate. Because if they could remember what happened when they were actually dead, 
something occurred after death. Something me, very me, important. Let me ask you this. In the time that you were volunteering in the hospice, before National Geographic asked you to write this book, you never encountered anyone um, that would uh, speak to you about what uh, Moody calls a shared death experience where they saw loved ones and whatnot or encounter someone. Uh, again, he coined the term NDE. I know you know that. Um, who would address a, a near-death experience with you, staff, otherwise? No, but don't forget, I did not. I was not interested in that in the time. This was long before I was investigating anything. Right. Um, so I didn't ask the questions. When you, you don't ask the questions, fear. people don't tell you about it. Right, right. Okay. And I did not ask the questions. Right. And you were there, again, to overcome a fear. So that would have been a different kind of an approach. I was there because a very close friend was dying, and I wanted to deal, as you say, with my fear. Okay. In the setup piece, I addressed the misinformation, fraud and deceit that we sometimes see in the field of NDE, well, general psychic research, for that matter, um, which would be anything that has to do with the survival of consciousness uh, beyond the death of the physical body. And I believe that it potentially impacts legitimate inquiry. What's your take on that? Well, everybody has sent me uh, clippings about uh, that young man who claims that he made everything up and right. it was all a lie or his mm -hmm. parents made it. I can't even remember who made it up. And, of course, that's going to happen. Inevitably, they're going to be people who lie about their experiences or other people who lie about the people's experiences because at this point it's very hard to prove or disprove that kind of reminiscence. Um, however, I was very careful in my book. This is, after all, a National Geographic book. And the other part of it is I'm a longtime journalist. Mm -hmm. Whenever I saw a person who seemed to be taking a little too much pleasure in the narrative um, to spin a, a tale, if you will, I dropped that person from the book. Did not continue with that person. I was very, very careful. I'm used to people as a journalist who lie or exaggerate or invent, and I am very careful with exactly who I interview before Daniel putting Rielly them in a book or an article. <laughs> Uh, yes, I said Dan Ariely would say we all lie. All right, so uh, just while we're on this subject, Alex Malarkey is the young man who has... The well-named. Pardon? Malarkey being his last name. Yeah, Malarkey. <laughs> well, it, it is, I suppose, isn't it? M-A-L-A-R? Right, um, a bunch of people. I can't see another way to pronounce that, so I suppose you're right. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that, though. I have a physician whose last name is Graves. I don't want to make those <laughs> kinds of connections. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Apparently, he's six years old. His father helps him write this story. His mother and father have now divorced. Um, they've not been paid... Uh, royalties on the book they claim uh this is mother and son and they come forward with this story so there are those people that say well maybe the story is genuine 
but he's taking it back for other reasons. Uh, and, and what we end up with is this, you know, there are going to be people who on one side will argue that, no, this was a valid story because it fits their belief, what they want to believe. And then there will be those who challenge it. Now, there are some that are challenging your work right now. Of course. What do you say to those skeptics who want to take all of this and put it into one fishbowl as though it was the same researcher doing the same thing uh, as opposed to several different researchers coming up with evidence? I mean, to me, it's like, look, in the discipline of physics, we have scientists in the laboratories that are doing physics. And if we have someone come forward and they say, hey, we have discovered cold fusion, as we did a few years ago at the University of Utah, well, then, you know, investigators quickly determine whether or not that's valid. I don't see how we're going to pursue this this area of, of uh, research, life beyond death, unless we do our own house cleaning. Your take on that. Okay, so when people say to me, I don't believe this, this is all nonsense, this is all hooey, uh, this is something people want to believe rather mm-hmm. than something that actually exists, mm-hmm. I simply say to them the truth. I was one of you. I was exactly of your opinion. I thought that people who believed in consciousness after death, and please note I'm not saying life after death, I'm saying consciousness after death. Right. I thought that was nonsense. And it was only after doing research, which is, after all, what I do for a living in other areas all the time, politics, celebrities, whatever, only Mm -hmm. after doing research that I came to the conclusion, very reluctantly, by the way, talking to scientists, talking to doctors and nurses, and talking, obviously, to people who had experienced consciousness after death, that it exists. It exists. I don't know why it exists. I don't know how it exists. All I know is that a lot of the people who experience consciousness after death and experience precise conversations, precise uh, incidents, and had those incidents verified by the doctors and nurses working on them at the time that they experienced heart attacks or death of some sort. It was only after that that I realized it has to exist because it has been verified by people who have nothing to gain from it. In other words, these were not best-selling writers. These are not people who stood to make a killing uh, after writing books. These are people who just had it happen to them, and they don't know why either. You, uh, you say in your book, belief just isn't in my DNA. Are you going to say That's that correct. still? Yes. I only believe after things are verified. In other words, I demand facts. When I get the facts, then I believe. If consciousness survives death, and and I concur, I totally, I mean, my own research says that over and over again. Um, If consciousness survives death, and I prefer that terminology as well for what it's worth, 
then that gives rise to a, a whole quandary of philosophical investigations. You know, uh, what does consciousness do after death? What is its destiny? Why is it, you know, uh, where did it come from initially? Is it is it in energy? You get involved in all these kinds of things. And, True. And, and doesn't that lead you at some point to begin to build a philosophical belief about what you might face after death? It does. It absolutely does. It also leads me to think about quantum physics. It leads me to believe in reincarnation. Not believe in reincarnation, but to consider it. Uh It does all of those things. I'm not denying that. Do I know about reincarnation? No, I'm not positive about anything. Right. Do I understand quantum physics? No, I'm reading about it, but its understanding comes very slowly. Um, but, of course, it forces me to reconsider everything I've ever thought. Okay. So w- what we're doing here, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what we're doing is we're avoiding the word belief by way of attaching it to some metaphysical perspective. Well, the the thing about belief that that worries me always is belief isn't based on fact. And when you've interviewed over 100 people who've had death experiences, not near death, they were actually dead, and and discussed them, and when you've talked to a lot of doctors and scientists and nurses, then it's no longer a question of belief. It is gradually dawning on you that this is a fact. Right. Belief is okay. something you can, so, you know, you can absorb or not absorb. Facts yeah. are there. Now we can't parsing, do anything about them. Parsing definitions. See, to me, you have life beliefs, and if I were to say to you, "Do people lie?" you would say, "Well, of course, some people lie." And that's I would say, true. Well, and you have a belief that people lie, <laughs> but but that's all nonsense anyway. Listen, I think you made an important point having to do with death travels. That's your metaphor. And and research, and that was the nature of dread, universal dread. Do you actually find that it was um, more than just scientific scorn that encourages, uh, discourages, I should say, death research? Yes. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. More than scientific scorn. More than scientific. Yeah. Uh, no, I think scientific scorn is a huge weapon. It is a sword. And a lot of very, or a number of prominent scientists, neurologists, are uh, threatened uh, by other scientists when they enter this realm, when they decide to examine a very important area, namely what happens after death. Um, a lot Which of is scientists. Really, what's life about, right? A, what gets right. more important? Right, and, and considering that we're all going to die, hello. Maybe it's an important area, Um, but a lot of scientists feel that this is not an area that should be examined because to them it's obvious what happens after death, nothing at all. And uh, they not only discourage their fellow scientists from examining it, they punish them. Uh, That's why in my book I call them uh, Galileos, the people who really try to discover what happens after death examine it, um, are very, very courageous, 
and are scorned by their fellow scientists, and very often they're denied tenure at universities for their work. That's a fact. Now, and I've spoken to some, you are a prominent journalist. You're very well known, um, and, and you've run some pretty hot issues of late, having to do with uh, the world of politics and fraud and so forth. Uh, didn't you have the same concern? How is how is this going to? What kind of a shadow is it going to cast on Judy Backrack? She's it's a true. Conservative. What you're saying is absolutely true. And, and I what's did. happened? And, and, okay. I decided and, that uh, whatever shadow it would cast, and I'm sure a number. In fact, I know a number of my friends and relatives uh, think I've gone off the deep end because I'm <laughs> examining these issues. Um, was irrelevant. The important thing about journalism, just as the important thing is in science and medicine, is to do your research and go where the where evidence takes you. It's not to please your grandmother or your mother or your best friend or your husband. It's to do what needs to be done. Find out. And I've decided that the same principles that made me a journalist or make doctors doctors were going to guide me. I was going to find out whatever the cost, and I did. But I have to add, as you pointed out, that a number of my friends look at me strangely and a number of my relatives, to be frank. All right. As far as your professional career is concerned, uh, have you heard from anyone that you work with um, that would cause you to think maybe uh, you're on a short list? Um, no, but uh, don't forget, in journalism, as in other professions, people don't always tell you what they think. My relatives do, and my friends do, and some of it hasn't been very flattering. But the people you work with generally don't tell you everything about what they think about you. Um, they keep it to themselves. Um, but if you're asking if I've been punished in some way uh, professionally, no, I haven't been. Uh, I don't know why, but I haven't been. Well, it's Not a yet, great anyway. book. Um, Thank you. And I think it's a straightforward, honest kind of read. And I, and, and I think anyone that reads the book, regardless of their view, has to give you credit for the way you carried out the investigation and... Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it would appear that you've really done this work without a bias, that you've gone into it as a genuine investigator and let the facts take you where they are. Okay. <clears throat> you have said that the last thing you want when the time comes <laughs> is to pass over and find angels and large family reunions. <laughs> now, that, you know, that's kind of telling a bit of self-disclosure there, Judy. Please share with us. Why Why not have that big family reunion and harps and angels and, <laughs> and all those things Mark Twain said, my God, I don't want to die if that's what I get. Did Mark Twain say that, too? That's nice Pretty to close, know. yes, pretty close. He said, who, who wants to go to heaven if when you get over there, all you get is harps and angels? <laughs> He's right. He was right. That's Letters to Earth. That's I, I'm in good company. It's good to know. I hope I do see Mark Twain when I die. I have to, I have to <laughs> add that. No, you have to know that, um, to me, 
heaven is is very much as it is described by a number of people in my book. It's much more interesting than a family reunion. Of course, if you have my family, almost anything is more interesting. But (laughs) having said that, our popular notions of angels with harps and clouds and so on and halos is very dull stuff compared to what people who have actually died, meaning they had heart attacks or were struck by lightning or were strangled by a boyfriend, all of which occurs to individuals in my book, um, what they perceived, what they saw and felt and went through when they were dead was far more fascinating. Some of them saw the universe. Um, They saw planets and stars and were able to move towards those planets and stars uh, and away from them by will. Um, Some of them did see dead relatives, but interestingly, it's always the dead relatives that you really like, not the ones who bored you at cocktail parties. Some of some of them uh, saw gorgeous gardens, saw wise men, and asked the metaphysical questions about the meaning of life and death. So what we're talking about here is experiences that are far more interesting than just seeing your Uncle Louie, you know, at a family picnic or seeing some angel. Um, apparently, consciousness after death is an intriguing, fascinating experience. And I don't want to diminish it by saying, you know, oh, you're never going to see an angel, or you're never going to see Jesus or Muhammad or Moses. But interestingly, nobody I spoke to, and as I say, I spoke to about 100 people who had actually died and had memories, ever saw those individuals. Nobody saw Jesus whom I spoke to. Nobody saw Muhammad, nobody saw Moses. They saw the universe very often, or their uh, portion of the universe. And that, to me, is fascinating. I don't know what it means. I am not a theologian, obviously, but it's very interesting. And it's very heartening, I have to say, that the whatever consciousness is after death, it is something very intriguing to the individual who experiences it. Well, perhaps we just continue learning. We have some kind of progression that goes I'd on. like we that. A, so do I. Um, I. I hope maybe my favorite entertainment comes along, though I get kind of hooked to some of these TV series. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> if you would like to know more about Judy Backrack, her work and book, and it is a great read, Glimpsing Heaven, The Stories and Science of Life After Death, Visit her website at Judy Backrack, that's J-U-D-Y-B-A-C-H-R-A-C-H dot com. Now we have a video for you of our guest today during the break discussing her work. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. 
Inner talk works by priming how you talk to yourself, and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals, anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Judy Backrack about her book, Glimpsing Heaven. Now, Judy, we just played your second musical choice, Imagine by John Lennon, a world favorite. So please tell us, what's up with this one? Well, very much like the first one, Hey Jude, it is an optimistic song. In other words, it says, Imagine there's no heaven. It is up to you to make your own heaven. And I think on this earth, while we're still alive, that's a fact. It is up to us to work very hard to make the world a better place. After death, that's a different issue. But I think uh, Lenin was speaking very strongly to his fellow human beings about what we needed to do while we're still alive. And that, to me, has always been very touching and compelling. Imagine there are no nations. Imagine we're all one. Um, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? We're all one. Well, we are, aren't we? None of us, even those of us whom we hate or despise or dislike or look down on, is that different from us, from you and me? We're very similar. We may not be exactly equal, but we're very similar. And I think we have to respect that, 
particularly these days when it seems that respect is on the decline. Right. I think in spiritual circles, um, you know, the oneness that people talk about today is the drop of water in the in the ocean. And so I'm more directly asking you the way you phrased what you did about your thoughts on that. Um, you know, consciousness leaves um, the body behind. It persists. Uh, but all the reports seem to have it persisting in individual characteristics, not melding or merging into one, or or am I wrong? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, from what I have learned uh, by interviewing people, it seems that some of you does meld with the universe. Um, you do belong to something other than yourself after death. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't have individual experiences. Everybody I interviewed of the hundred who did have memories of after-death experiences had something, if only slightly different, from another person's. None of them were precisely the same. Uh, But having said that, they all expressed uh, a feeling that they were melding with the rest of the universe even if their individual experiences were individual and were different from their neighbors. So perhaps like an energy form, um, we'll just take something everybody understands, a a radio wave, as its strength dissipates, it falls back into an energy potential field. Uh, Is is something like that? Is that what I'm understanding? That was expressed to me. That was expressed to me by uh, a doctor, uh, a surgeon, who died after being struck by lightning, uh, that he felt uh, he was part of universal energy, energy field, as you said, when he died. Uh, Not everybody expressed it precisely that way, but he did because he's a surgeon, he's a doctor. Um, It depends on how long you're dead for, from what I gather. Uh, those people who were dead for, say, only two or three minutes had quite different experiences, much more personal experiences, if you will, than those who were dead for longer than two or three minutes. Those who were dead for half an hour to an hour found themselves part of the universe. Uh, his story, um, you tell, of course, in your book, together with many others, uh, but that's a particularly interesting one. Do you want to unpack his story a little bit for our audience? Tease him a little bit with it. Okay. Um, that is, an in- I'm referring to an individual named Anthony Sicoria. He is a surgeon from upstate New York, and he was at a family reunion when he was struck by lightning. He was trying to actually call his mother on a payphone, so we're talking about a number of years ago when they're there were a lot of payphones, and all of a sudden he saw a thunderstorm gathering, and too late he was trying to hang up the phone when uh, he was struck by lightning. And uh, he dropped dead. He knows he was dead for several reasons. One is he fell to the ground and saw actually his mother-in-law, whose birthday it was, screaming and running past him for help. And he was trying to yell out to her, saying, I'm okay, I'm absolutely fine. But obviously, she didn't hear him because he was dead. 
Um, and he found himself, after a while, turning into a blue ball of pure energy and going up the steps of a pavilion. There was a stone pavilion right next to them and actually moving through walls uh, as this blue burst of energy. And at some point or other, he found himself looking at his own children, who were very young at the time, and were having their faces painted. Uh, like many people in my book, however, he did not feel very much regret at the idea of either being dead or of leaving his children behind. He had a feeling they would be okay. Almost everybody in my book who left behind loved ones or children or whatever feels that those they leave behind will be okay. And he found himself magically moving through walls and then all of a sudden found himself back on the ground again, dead. And a nurse who happened to be in the area, actually, by chance, was pounding on his chest and giving him CPR. And again, like most people I interviewed, he did not want to come back to life. Um, first of all, he knew that coming back to life would be mean coming back to a body that was pretty much destroyed and very much in pain. Lightning had struck him through the lips and then gone out his foot. So he was in excruciating pain. And second of all, he liked being dead. It's apparently a very pleasant state of being, more than pleasant, joyful. And the nurse kept pounding at him and bringing him back to life. And finally, he stopped her physically, and he said, this is classic, he's the only one who said this in the book, that's okay, you can stop, I'm a doctor. <laughs> um, uh, that sounds like a true doctor, doesn't it? Don't, you know, I know much more than you, stop doing what you're doing, I'm a doctor. And he came back to life, and with no understanding of what he should do next, uh, he went to visit a neurologist to say, look, you know, I was struck by lightning, uh, I was dead, I was brought back to life by a nurse who did CPR, what do I do now? And the neurologist said, nothing to be done. In those cases, you're either brought back to life through CPR or not. You're brought back to life, and there's nothing more I can do for you. But his whole life was changed. He became obsessed by music. He became a pianist. He became a composer. This is a guy who never liked music much before. Mm -hmm. um, and like many people in my book who have experienced death and been brought back to life, he got a divorce. Now, he's one of the rare ones. He remarried his wife after a few years. But many people who die and have experiences after death do get divorced. It's one of those sad facts. You know, the downside, we hear a lot of the upside, and I'm going to ask you about that in just a minute. But the, the downside to these experiences includes some really interesting data, including uh, the higher divorce rate. What other data of that kind did you find? They find that they're very scared of telling other people, even close friends or family members or husbands or wives, about what happened to them while they were dead. And there's very good reason for them to feel reluctant, which is, first of all, people think you're nuts or that you've been hallucinating. Uh, one way or the other, 
they don't enjoy talking to you about whatever you've experienced when you die. Um, and the reason is because they've been left out in the cold. Right. Uh, you've gone out and had a fabulous adventure while dead, which frankly goes against common sense and anything we've been taught to believe. What do you mean you were dead and you had a good time? What do you mean you were dead and you didn't want to come back to life? What does that say about our relationship if we're married or if you're my son or if you're my boyfriend? It is an indication that you're dissatisfied with life as we know it and dissatisfied with life with me. So people feel betrayed if you tell them, I was dead and I didn't want to come back. You hinted at this um, because of in, in the last story because of the pianist role, but one of the factors that proponents of death research refer to often as a metric suggesting a genuine NDE is that of a significant change in attitudes and behavior, particularly gifts that people come back with. Um, did you discover... Any significant correlations with special gifts that people brought back? And if so, what yes. were they? And that's very difficult, too. A number of people, particularly the first person in my book, and that is a very difficult thing to come back with, um, said that they came back with the ability to know what other people are thinking. Now, I know a lot of people who are listening to you will not believe this, uh, but the doctor, one of the surgeons of that individual who came back with that ability, listened to her complain about it all the time. It's a very disturbing thing to come back with. It is, in a way, a gift, but in another way, it's a curse. Because if you're walking down the street or you're in the supermarket standing online, you don't necessarily want to know what another person is thinking. It may be something you don't want to know anything about, or it may be that you realize that person has just lost a loved one and is grieving terribly. It's a very hard burden to carry to know what other people are thinking or feeling. And to have that 24-7 is a huge burden. So when I, I was very dubious about these gifts, I have to say. Um, I was willing to believe after a while that people had memories of death. I was absolutely willing to believe that, you know, when you're on the 20th or 30th person who's had those abilities, you start believing them. But I wasn't willing to believe that they had ESP or the ability to know what another person is thinking until I talked to a Dutch cardiologist who had done a lot of research in the area. And I said to him, do you honestly believe that these people have ESP, that they walk down the street and they know what another individual is thinking? after they come back from the dead. And he said, of course I do. And I said, why? And he said, because death probably changes your DNA. It changes some of your abilities. And then he said something very interesting, too. He said, why wouldn't it? And that's true. Death is a trauma, not only to your mind, but to your body. So it may well change your abilities. In the event of this surgeon in from upstate New York who died when he was struck by lightning, it gave him the ability to be a pianist, to have a passion for music. And in the case of the first person I wrote about and her doctor, 
it gave her the ability to know what people were thinking. And that's a huge burden, and it changes your life. A little bit of a story that uh, then we'll ask the question from. I interviewed a fellow by the name of James Paget, lives in Seattle, walked out of a bar one evening, karaoke bar, a couple of thugs jumped him, beat him unconscious, robbed him. Woke up in the hospital after, I think it was a three-day coma. A mathematical prodigy. Well, that's interesting. He is what we call an acquired savant. He, through synesthesia, sees geometry everywhere and Mm -hmm. is now explaining to some of our Beth math professors at universities like Princeton and Cambridge what some of this these fractals mean. Now, my question. A physician is struck in the head, the tongue, the face, where he's talking by lightning. Did you differentiate between those who claim to have special abilities or demonstrated special abilities? I don't want to be that suspect. And whether or not the cause of their death travel uh, had anything to do with a head injury? Um, That's a good question. Um, You know, I'm going to get an A out of you, aren't I? I'm asking you some good questions you keep saying. I I know what you're talking about. I I, I realize what you're talking about. He He had an injury, and it was in the area of his mouth, which is in your head. Um, and is that what caused it rather than death itself? Right. I have no answer, and I suspect he doesn't have the answer either. All he knows is he remembers very clearly what happened during death, which was right, one source you... of alienation from his wife, and the second source of alienation was he was totally obsessed with music for the first time in his life. Um, there are those who would say, and one of them did say, um, that his brain was fried as a result of being struck by lightning. And so it fried some circuits of his brain, might have closed off some, and opened up others. Uh, Whether we can distinguish the injury from the death, I don't know that we can. I I really don't know. My question, Judy, is did you discriminate uh, in your research? Did you, as the investigator, look to see if there was a correlation in that aspect of NDEs? Not, I mean, not all NDEs come back with a gift. So my question would really be, well, look, if we discovered that, you know, these people that come back with a gift were the same people who died... because of a head injury, then maybe we would have another candidate for the source of the gift. It might be, uh, although uh, there there has been research done, once again, by the Dutch cardiologist I interviewed, because he has interviewed thousands of people who have had, who have died. And uh, he found, and he was the one who said, I think death changes your DNA. And he found that uh, death uh, gave certain gifts to a fair number of them. Now, did he further parse it and say, which of you have had head injuries, which of you have had heart attacks? That I don't think he did. Uh, It was more generic than that. 
Uh, but don't forget, I've only interviewed about 100 people who died, so I am not a scientist, and I have no that, answer to that. That would be, I think, a good investigation. I spoke with Dr. Kevin Nelson, professor of neurology at length, and I know you've dealt with at least secondary questions regarding his work, but his research with near-death experiences and his journal article, published journal article, refereed journal article, um, he argues that NDEs are largely REM experiences. He draws on near-death experiences to explain how the brain conjures up feelings of intense spirituality and then reproduces this in a dreamlike vision. Uh, if you know, I can stop you there, can I stop you there? Please do, I go didn't ahead. research near-death. I researched death. Okay. In other words, the well, people I, I was talking to and the people I studied and the people I interviewed were had no brain stem activity best we can tell for how and their long? hearts had stopped for how long because that's a moving target up to we, an hour up the to first an hour. one was dead Documented. for an hour and a bit actually um, that's Pamela Reynolds Lowry and uh, so don't forget uh, the surgeon we uh, we were talking about who died after being struck by lightning you don't get CPR to stop your to start your heart again unless your heart has stopped. So right, but the heart can stop, and the doctor will tell you that you're not necessarily dead. Uh, uh, well, actually, uh, doctors will tell you, and I did research this, that after about mm, twenty seconds, your brain is stopped too. In other words, it's pretty quick. There's no brainstem activity after 20 to 30 seconds. Well, so, that's one of the arguments in NDE research, Judy. What, what exactly constitutes the clinically dead? At what point is it? But if you've got someone whose heart has stopped and we have no brainstem activity, we're flatlined, and they have been that way for over an hour, no one is going to say... Uh, anything other than, yeah, they were dead. Well, that was Pamela Reynolds-Lowry. They had to put her to death, as you know, because you've read the book. They had to put her to death because she had a huge aneurysm at the base of her brain. And so that's called Operation Standstill. And they measured her brainstem activities with clickers in her ears, and they found none. And her heart stopped for over an hour because they had to do that. And then finally, they attached her to a heart-lung machine after an hour and a bit. So they had to have a clear field of vision in order to take to take care of the aneurysm. So she was dead, dead. You can talk to her doctor. I did. Um, she was dead. Pam Reynolds Lowry is a story that I want I want you to flesh out, but. We have about a minute and a half before break, so I don't even want you to get started on that at this point. We'll pick it up when we come back from our break, and we'll take, you know, uh, calls or questions out of our chat room or across the phone. You suggest that some experiencers go on, and that's your term, experiencers. I like that. That's their go term. On and Mine on. is death travelers. Pardon? They call themselves experiencers. Okay. I call them death travelers. Okay. We have both terms in your book. Yeah. You say some of them go on and on. They won't shut up. That's true. Why is that? I think they're so taken with the novelty of their experience and the excitement of it. It is a huge ad- adventure. Uh, it is not 
something that you go, okay, that was that, now on to something else. It never leaves you. So they never shut up about it. It, it, Frankly, sometimes it's hard interviewing them because they won't let you ask a question. They're so obsessed with it. That's why. All right. You don't think it's a messianic complex? Wanted a little No, you know, people who are weird... I dropped from my book before it start, before anything started. Right. I, I still ran look away for the psychological years. motive and everything. Right. All right. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Judy Bacharach about her book, Glimpsing Heaven. You don't want to miss that book. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We'll be right back after paying some bills. We'll take your phone calls. We'll answer We'll handle your questions out of our chat room. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Wow. 
Welcome back. We've been chatting with Judy Backrack about her life, work, and book, Glimpsing Heaven, the stories and science of life after death. In this half hour, we will take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I do love your comments and feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So even when this show is done, come leave your remarks for us. I invite you to join me there. All right, Judy, we just played Both Sides Now, as performed by Judy Collins. That's one of my favorites. Why is this one a great one to you? This is so easy. I was in love for the first time in my life when I heard that song. Mm-hmm. And it always reminds me of the guy to whom I was engaged at the time, whom, by the way, I did not marry. But um, he was a great guy at the time, and um, it reminds me of love. Well, we all have that, our first love songs. I, I, the lyrics to this song, I think, are just incredibly challenging. And it's I, true, it's really not a song about love. It's really a song about life. I understand that. But yeah. for me at the time, it was a song about love. Uh, okay, we'll leave it at that. I'm going to ask you something that most writers who report on death journeys want to totally ignore. They don't want to deal with it at all. And uh, and yet, you know, my own research, I know there's a good deal of this that goes on. So I'm going to ask you, tell us about hell or something like it. There about 2%, perhaps more, because people are reluctant to talk about this, 2% of people who've actually died have bad memories of what death was like. They are not necessarily bad people. They're not evil. But they have bad experiences, and they recall those bad experiences. And it is a life-changing event. Um, Those people who come back with awful memories never get over it. And they try for the rest of their lives to make sense of it. I was very fortunate, out of about the 100 people I've interviewed who do have memories of death, two told me they had bad, very bad memories. And uh, that's rare, because most people don't want to admit to it. They know what you're thinking of them if they do admit to it. They, they know you're thinking she or he must have done something bad in their lives to have deserved those awful memories of death. So I was fortunate that two people were brave enough to tell me about their experiences. You were, indeed. Now... The psychologist in me has to ask this. Did you, were you able, did you infer uh, any correlation whatsoever between the kind of people that shared their negative experiences versus the kind of people that saw love and glory? None at all. Uh, One of the individuals I interviewed, a, a very interesting, intelligent, delightful person named Nancy Evans Bush was a former school teacher. She taught middle school. She taught English, uh, English literature. And uh, she died during childbirth, which is not as uncommon as one might think. Uh, childbirth is a, is a trauma for the body, and she died during that period. And she was brought back to life. But in the interim, she had an experience while she was dead where she was caught in midair, you know, in you know, over the universe, flying over the universe, 
um, and she saw in the universe a bunch of circles, black as well as white. Part of them was black, part of them was white. And they managed to inform her that her whole life had been a joke, that she did not exist, she had never existed, uh, that everything she believed to have existed, including her toddler at home, uh, did not, in fact, exist. And all of life was an illusion. And it broke her up. When she came back to life, she had to continue her existence uh, with a new baby, her husband, her toddler at home. And part of her believed for years that she really didn't exist, that her life was a joke, and that the people around her whom she loved also didn't exist. Um, and it took her many years to reconcile that horrible experience with her basically very good life uh, with a husband and children uh, as a teacher. Um, she was the daughter of a Congregationalist minister. She could not wrap her mind around that, and you can understand why. I can indeed. And, and, and of course, I can understand the psychology that might lead to having that kind of an experience. But that set aside, you know, the the... People that are genuine, generally attracted to this kind of information. They want to believe this information. They're, they're your loyal fans. They're not the people that will question what you're doing. They, um, they tend to be people who readily accept that there are things like hauntings in the world, uh, you know, poltergeists and, and manifestations of that shall we say, darker side of a metaphysical paradigm. And uh, at the same time, they reject the idea that crossing over could lead you to anything other than, you know, golden orbs and white Lit. light and peace. Why is that? I think that very often, because life is very difficult, or can be very difficult. And because death, the unknown, is very scary, or can be very scary, people need reinforcement. They need uh, psychological sustenance. So sometimes they believe, and you and I have known people like this, they believe what they want to believe. Um, and they wish to believe that uh, whatever happens after death is going to be glorious. Uh, I find what happens after death to be fascinating. It is not necessarily inevitably glorious. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. You have to go by what honest people tell you, and that's what honest people have told me. You should write book two. My suggestion, <laughs> write book two, and in book two, Look at correlations between personality types and motivation and experiences. But while I'm suggesting that to you, how about the cultural differences? My own work, I found cultural differences. As what have you what, found in the way of cultural differences? Um, individuals that are Islam, uh, a Muslim, I should say, are mm -hmm. likely to encounter Muhammad. Now, I are know they? you discount uh -huh. those. Uh, completely. You didn't encounter anyone like that. Well, it's not that I discount them. It's just that in my research, I didn't encounter anybody. So that's, that's all. I don't discount anything. I just didn't meet them. 
you didn't you didn't encounter any of them. Well, that's right. Okay, we have had uh, more than two dozen guests on this show. People like Jim Tucker, John Lerner, Craig Hogan, Diane Archangel. I mean, Ed Klein, the 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 so-called, including Ray Moody and and John um, Turner. The the people that are out in front writing all the books and telling the stories about NDE research. And, you know, we have discussed repeatedly the cultural distinction between what a person might expect and what it is that they find. And my question to you is, did you find any such thing in your research? Well, you would expect that, for instance, the daughter of a Congregationalist minister who mm-hmm. always went to church and was a real believer in Jesus and still is, in fact, well, um, to yeah, have encountered Jimmy Jesus. Con- yeah, but, uh, but you, you might, unless she had a guilt complex for something she'd done or, you know, her failure to live up to the expectations of her father. Um, so you could find also a, a psychological reason for why she might have had that experience. Maybe. I, I, I'm not her therapist. All I can tell you is this. Almost everybody I interviewed was Christian. Almost everybody. I, in mm-hmm. fact, only one person wasn't, um, and she was an mm-hmm. atheist. Um, and the atheist dying, and she was, by the way, an atheist both before her death experience she drowned. And afterwards, okay, she, she's a doctor in a hospice, one of the hospices I worked in mm-hmm. as a volunteer. And uh, she's a gerontologist. She had the exact same experience when she drowned as a monk, who obviously is a believing person, who mm-hmm. drowned at about when he was a young man and she drowned as a young girl. Um, so I did not find that uh, differentiation that you're talking about, that a, a person with a guilt complex or a person brought up this way would believe that, and a person brought up another way would believe another thing. But that's just, you know, I don't pretend to be a scientist, and I've only interviewed about 100 people with death experiences. I'm not counting the doctors and nurses I interviewed. Uh, but, you know, you have your own people you've worked with. The people I interviewed whether they were believers, non-believers, Christians, whatever, they all had experiences, but uh, they did not see Jesus or Muhammad or any any individual right. one might, might expect them to see. Well, if they were nearly all Christian, you wouldn't expect them to encounter something like that. But, no, I, but did, Jesus you know, I do would. find it interesting that if you have all Christians, they're not encountering Christ. No, I found that interesting, too. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Okay. And I asked the monk about that very specifically. I said, did you see God? Did you see Jesus? Did you see anybody, archangels? And he went, no, I, I drowned, and I saw incredible light, which is very common, as you know, and I, and I, and I felt a wonderful peace, and I felt ap- he did pray. Uh, he says, uh, when he was dead. And he found the words to a prayer. He didn't know he would find those words when he was dead, and he did pray. Uh, The atheist obviously did not pray, um, but had the exact same experience. Incredible peace, incredible, beautiful light. That's it. 
They both drowned. They both died the same way. Yeah. I, I do have difficulty comprehending someone who has a death travel, death experience, who then comes back and is atheist by the true sense of the word. Isn't that interesting? I yeah. said to her, Caitlin, you know, you felt incredible peace when you were de- dead. You saw a beautiful, brilliant light. How do you account for that if if you were dead? And she said that was a neurological reaction, just boom like that. She's a doctor, okay? And I said, well, what does that mean, a neurological reaction when you're dead? Please explain this to me. She said, I can't. That's it. Well, you know, there is the famous story. Galileo brought over three scientists, the Lacruz telescope. They looked out there, and what they saw, they turned to him and said, you painted that on the end of the telescope, and they walked away. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I promised our audience Pam Reynolds-Lowry. Tell us that story. Pam Reynolds-Lowry was an Atlanta, Georgia songwriter. Uh, she was very beautiful. She looked very much like the actress Farrah Fawcett when she was young. And um, when she was in her 30s, early 30s, uh, she found herself very dizzy. Uh, her, at the tip of her fingers, couldn't play her guitar very well anymore. Uh, she got horrible migraines, and she couldn't figure it out. So she went to a local uh, neurologist who fairly soon thereafter diagnosed a massive uh, aneurysm at the base of her skull in her brain. And um, that doctor said, you have very few options. If you do nothing, it is likely, 90% likely, the aneurysm will burst and you will die. If you don't die when it bursts, uh, you will be paralyzed for life. So she looked at various places and she found uh, the Barrow Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, which had an operation for massive aneurysms, and it is known as Operation Standstill. They stop your heart. They, they, they basically kill you for an hour. You're dead for about an hour, a little over. And they draw all the blood from your body so they can have a clear visual field of your brain. And um, there is no brainstem activities. They put uh, clickers in your ears to measure brainstem activities, and they tape your eyes shut, and they pump you full, of course, of of, uh, anesthetics, and uh, they operate on your brain. So they did that to her, and she was out for a bit over an hour, and um, when she came to, she finally, I mean, 12 hours after she came to, she spoke to one of her surgeons, the person I interviewed, in fact, and she told him what the the uh, the surgical saw looked like. She said it looked like an electric toothbrush. She told him uh, that she didn't understand what they were doing, fiddling around with her femoral artery. As it turned out, they had indeed had discussions about her femoral artery because they were trying to connect it to the heart-lung machine, and one of her arteries was too small on the left side, so they had to go to the femoral artery on the right side. And then finally she told him, uh, this doctor, that she was really angry at, with them uh, because they played a song by the Eagles, uh, which is called Hotel California, which is about death, 
and she found that very insensitive on the part of the medical staff to play that song while they're operating on a person who might very well die on the, under the knife. No All kidding. these things were accurate, totally accurate. She got everything. Her eyes had been taped shut, as I said. Her ears had clickers in them. She couldn't hear anybody talking, much less music. And uh, she was dead. Her heart had stopped for over an hour, and there was no brainstem activity, which they could measure because there were those clickers in her ears. Everything she said, she described the instrumentation, she described everything, was accurate. And her doctor went to his supervisor, another surgeon, and he said, Pamela Reynolds-Lowry is, is telling me things she shouldn't be knowing. And he described them to his supervisor, the other surgeon. And the surgeon, whose name is Dr. Spetzler, said famously, tell me what you've been smoking, because I might want some of that. Nobody could believe it. She knew everything that had been going on. She had said she had popped out of her body during the surgery and saw everything that was going on while she was dead. And she must have, because she saw everything that was going on and heard everything that was going on. You know, John Lermer told us about a patient he had... Uh, who uh, clinically dead uh, during that period of time rose out of his body and saw from the ceiling a uh, coin. Uh, I don't remember, a quarter, a half dollar or something, sitting high in the operating room on a piece of equipment, well out of the normal range of vision. Lermer says that he, patient told him this, told him some other details. He went into the operating room, got a chair, stood up on it, and sure enough, here was this dusty old coin sitting up on top. To me, that is the kind of evidence that is the most credible of all. It is we compelling. Have, pardon? It is compelling. Absolutely compelling. And the Pam Reynolds-Lowry story is... is uh, just you must believe that consciousness does indeed um, at least at the very least surpass any and all of the definitions that we give it when we talk about local consciousness or it is a local event or it is a machination of some organ called brain Listen, I want. I, I think everybody should read your book, uh, irrespective of what their belief might be. Uh, I do think that uh, it dismisses a lot of doubt and fear uh, that people might have about uh, death and dying. And as you say, we're all going to be facing that, and that is a significant part of our life. Um, you know, living a life without thinking about that is not living a conscious one. So with that bit of an endorsement, I want you to tell everybody how they can find the, your book, uh, where they go, how they can learn more about your work. Uh, you have a website. Tell us about also you have more than one website, but you're answering any and all questions about death. So make sure you tell us about that website and how people can follow up and learn more about you, where you're speaking, making presentations, and so forth. Well, the book is called Glimpsing Heaven. It's a National Geographic book, interestingly, and it can be found on Amazon.com, at Target, 
um, at Walmart um, and at Barnes & Noble. Um, it's selling very briskly, uh, so far 50000 to date. And um, I answer questions very easily all the time. All you have to do is write me at Judy at JudyBackrack.com. Judy Backrack is spelled J-U-D-Y-B-A-C-H-R-A-C-H.com. And I answer people's questions all the time. All right. And Judy, uh, give your website, please. It is JudyBackrack.com. Very easy. Okay. Good. All right. Uh, we certainly appreciate you visiting with us today and uh, sharing. And again, uh, it's a marvelous book. And I'm sorry, we're out of time. Thanks We've so much. come to the end. I'm sorry, what'd you say? Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.